If you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, grab them and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And um, that's where we're going to be for the most of our, our time this morning, um, is, is, is that chapter. We have um, been in a series on revival, and um, this revival series, for some reason, God has not let me leave it, and uh, neither uh, nor are we going to leave it for the next several weeks. And um, it's the only thing God has given me passion to preach on over the past several weeks. I don't know if that means that we're at a crossroads as a church. I don't know if that means we're here at a crossroads as a family. I don't know if that means we're at a crossroads as a nation. I don't know what that means. But I do know this, that God is continuing to tell me that either we are going to repent and see revival or we are going to continue to wander away from Him. Go through the motions, continue being religious, but yet have no power. And the church is losing power every single day in our society and in our community. But we have the power in the name of Jesus. But the truth is, is that our churches need revival more than they need anything else. People say in our city, you know, our churches need to be more transparent. Our churches need more programs. Our churches need this. Our churches need revival. Period. End of sentence. Not just Ridgeview, but all of our churches in our city. Our nation needs a spiritual awakening. And our nation is never going to come to where God wants it to be until God's people begin to experience revival and begin to repent and turn back to Him and then go forth to do His mission and to watch a spiritual awakening happen. And our nation right now, whether you realize it or not, with all of the chaos all of, uh, that's the only way I can describe it, just chaos of everything we see around us. Our nation is ripe for a spiritual awakening. Our nation has been in as bad of shape after the American Revolution and God sent a spiritual awakening. Our nation was in just as badly divided during the Civil War and God sent a great spiritual awakening and I believe with all my heart that God will send a spiritual awakening if God's people will begin to turn back to Him and we begin to long for revival and for God's presence and not ourselves. A couple of weeks ago um, we talked about when the church has left the building I just brought a simple message and some of you weren't here but I talked about the attitudes that were necessary for revival to take place. They're found in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. That's the attitudes that we have to have if revival is going to come to us. And um, a lot of people just want to know, though, what is Revival. And so I defined it a few weeks ago, and I want to just kind of walk with you through some things that maybe you haven't heard. Some of you have heard them before. If you did and you were here that week, just kind of hold on. We'll get to the message in just a moment, but I want to just share this with you. Duncan Campbell, a great revivalist, said this, Revival is a community saturated with God. Dr. Alvin Reed, who I had a chance to study under in a great evangelism, uh, said, revival is God's invasion into the lives of one or more of his people in order to awake them spiritually for kingdom ministry. 
But the definition that I want us to use for the rest of the summer as we look at this idea of what is revival, because most people don't even understand what revival is. It's simply this. Revival is a divinely initiated work in which God's people pray, repent of their sin, and return to a holy, spirit-filled, obedient love relationship with God. We have to really understand some things about what revival is before we'll ever see revival. And there's some common misconceptions. I, I shared these a few weeks ago, but I want to continue to share them. First one is that it can be produced through human efforts. Revival is, is a divinely initiated work. No matter what we do, no matter what we, we, we try to orchestrate in our own strength, either God will bless with revival or he won't. It is a God-initiated thing. It's not a man-producing thing. And I don't care if you get the right music and the right preacher and the right this and the right that. Either God blesses it or he doesn't. The second misconception about revival, it's for unbelievers to be converted. How many of you have ever talked to people about you're having a revival at your church and the first question people ask is how many are, how many's been saved? How many of you? Just raise your hands if that's happened to you. Yeah. Revival was never intended for, for, un, uh, for believers. For, uh, uh, I'm sorry. Revival was never intended for unbelievers to be converted. Revival was intended for believers to look more like Jesus and to be revived. People who are dead aren't living. They need to be reborn. That's lost people. But people who are living, they're just... They're, they're, just not, they're just not vibrant. They're not lifelike. They're, kinda, they're, they're, they're dying, so to speak. They need to be revived and brought back to life again. We never hear these things, though. And it's something that we've got to change in our church culture. When we leave our churches, we don't just ask the statistics, hey, how many got saved today? No, we need to ask how many people's lives are changing because of the power of the gospel. And we forget that. And we think that somehow it's all about us. And, and it's just a common misconception on revival. The, the fourth one is that it can occur without repentance. Revival never takes place without repentance. It will never take place without repentance. I, I said this a few weeks ago and I'm going to say it again because some of you have never heard it. You can come to the altar, you can cry a bucket full of tears, you can be sorry over your sin and get up and leave and never be changed and that is not repentance. Repentance is when our will is bent to God. You ever heard anybody say, just raise your hand, you ever heard anybody say, man they must be broken. You ever heard it? Why? Because we look at them and we see that they're emotionally broken. But are they volitionally broken? Is their will bent toward God's? And people who are repentant get up and not just cry a bucket full of tears, but they get up and they change their life and they start following Christ. That's repentance. How many times have you and I just cried a bucket full of tears about our sin, got up and our life looked no different? Revival will never happen without repentance. The, 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 another one is that it always displays a great show of emotion. Now let me, let me caution you on something. Satan can mass produce every counterfeit of the work of the Spirit except to change life. You say, well, th those people were lifting their hands. Those people were shouting. Oh, man, those people were just coming to the altar, yada, yada. Satan can mass produce a counterfeit of every move of the Spirit except to change life. He can't produce that. 
And when we know revival has come, and when we know revival has set in, it's not because we've had so many decisions made. I know churches that have meetings, and they have hundreds of decisions for Christ made, and you look up six months later, and not one person is in church that made the decision. Not one person is serving God. Not one person is in fellowship with God's people. It tells me that there was not true conversion. Satan can mass produce any work of the Holy Spirit except to change life. And when someone's life is changing, you know they've been revived. The, another one is simply this, it will only happen one way. Revival will not just happen because I preach or because something else. Revival has happened in all sorts of ways. Revival's been layman led. Where people in the congregation decided to pray. And a great spiritual awakening took place. It doesn't just happen one certain way. And the last thing is that it's a shortcut around real evangelism. Well, if we just get a meeting and we invite people in and we do all these things, we won't have to go out and really, you know, share the gospel. Listen, when revival comes, God's people will have God on their lips. God's people will have God on their minds. God's people will have God in their hearts. They will begin to share with other people about God. It's not a shortcut around real evangelism. Because if revival comes, I promise you evangelism is going to happen. Second thing I want you to see is this pattern for revival. If you have a pen, I want you to write this down. Um, Or you can maybe take a, a picture of it on your phone. But I want you to just think of this for your life. Because this is the pattern of every child of God. It's the pattern of our lives. First one is that God's people depart from him. I'm going to be preaching on each individual one of these for the next several weeks. God's people depart from him. I don't know why it says God's people, the next one. But God disciplines his children. That's the next one. All of a sudden, we depart from him, we fall into sin. God begins to discipline us, begins to chasten us, and we go, oh, well, what have we done? God's people cry out for him. Sound like your life? Sounds like my life. God's people repent or perish. This is exactly what the Bible teaches. Number five, God's people are revived when they repent. Does that kind of sound like your life? Does that kind of sound like your spiritual journey? It's like, Zach, there are times when I'm really close to God and then, and then there are times where I feel like I'm just really far away. So I just want to ask you a question this morning, real simple. Because if we look into Scripture, what we see over and over and over, God tells his people this, the prophets tell the children of Israel this, Jesus comes on and kind of gives a different twist to this, but there is this one phrase that God uses over and over and over In the Old Testament with his people. And it's this. You are a stiff-necked people. But Jesus said what? Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, what God wants us to do is to take his yoke upon us. And a yoke was what was placed on two animals to help them kind of move in the same direction. But what we do is exactly what God says. You are a stiff-necked people, and you, 
you try to pull your own direction and you try to do what you want to do and you rebel against me and you do all these things. So I just want to ask you this question. And, and, bef- and, and as we get into this this morning, this message, don't sit there and think to yourself, because I'm not this morning. I wonder who this message is for. This message is for me as much as it's for you. Because God has revealed to me over and over and over, just the smallest areas in my life, this question, how far have you departed from him? How far have you departed from him? Where you once were walking in close fellowship with God, and now it seems like maybe God's distant. Maybe it seems like, you know, some things in your life have happened. How far have you departed from him? As we get into Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses lays out a command in in verse 11. For the people in the nation of Israel, Deuteronomy is really Moses' swan song. It's It's the most important things that Moses wants the children of Israel to know before they enter the promised land. Moses has been with them from the, from the time he, he showed up in Egypt to see all the plagues that God sent, to watch God deliver them through the Red Sea, to see God move in, in an incredible way on Mount Sinai in the wilderness. Moses has watched their rebellion over and over and over. He's seen God judge them. He's seen God uh, do some incredible things. He's watched their unfaithfulness at Kadesh Barnea in, in the book of Numbers where they sent spies into the land. He has seen all sorts of things and he's told them over and over in the book of Deuteronomy God is saying you are a stiff-necked people. And so Moses is, is delivering his final command to him. It's just really saying, all right, guys, I'm going to die, and you need to understand something. It's either now or never. And he says this. This command that I give you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach. It is not in heaven so that you have to ask who will go up to heaven and get it for us. And proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. And it is not across the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it for us. And proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. But the message is very near you. In your mouth. In your heart. So that you may follow it. Verse 15. See today I have set before you life and prosperity. Death and adversity. For I am commanding you. Today, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, statutes, and ordinances, so that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Now, go back with me a few verses. When you look in verses 11 through 14, what you see is that Moses says, everything that you need, children of Israel, for you to be obedient to God, you have it. Now, we know this. The law could never save, right? Because no one is perfect. No one could, could, could fulfill the whole law except Christ who did. But, but the law um, uh, could not save us by, because no one could, could uh, uh, live according to the law, all of it. But what Moses is not saying that. Moses is saying, you know what to do. You know how to be obedient. You don't have to say, man, we need some knowledge about this and we need you to go up here and you've got to go to the depths to find it and you've got to go all over the world to find it. It is close to you. It's in your heart. 
He says it. Look what he says. The, the, um, verse 14, the message is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, so that you may follow it. Now, flip with me just real quickly to Romans chapter 10. If you got your Bibles. I don't have this on the screen. Just Romans chapter 10. <clears throat> Romans chapter 10. Now, look at what the Apostle Paul uses this, this thought with. Moses is reminding them of their ability for obedience, but Paul's going to show us something different in in Romans chapter 10. Look at what he says. For Moses writes, or verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will go down into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. And this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth one confesses resulting in salvation. Now... What's he saying here? What's this whole idea here? Here's what Paul is saying. Here's what Moses is saying. Everything you need to understand what God has done in your life is in front of you. It's not hidden from you. You don't have to, even though we want to search the depths of Scripture and we're never going to find all the depths of Scripture, but the truth is, is in order to be obedient to God, everything you need is in front of you if you're a child of God. Why? The Bible says this in Galatians chapter 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, right? And who gives us the Holy Spirit? God does. When we come to know Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us in order that we can live a life pleasing to God. That we can live a life that that simply says that I'm serving God and my heart is drawn toward God rather than other things. And we tend to say these things. Well, if I just knew more about the Bible, I would be more obedient. Those are unexcusable, folks. Because what you need is right in front of you. It's in your mouth, it's in your heart, so that you may follow it. See, today I've set before you life and prosperity back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. Death and adversity. And then Moses does this. He tells them three things that God asks his children to do. It's all found in verse 16. Circle them in your Bible if you, if you have a pen. For I'm commanding you today, here's the first one, love the Lord. Love Him. Love Him. Second one, walk in His ways. I mean, it don't get much more simple than this, guys. And here's the last one, keep His commands. True followers of Jesus do these things. True followers of Jesus do these things. Look, look, at, look back with me at that pattern for revival. Remember we talked about it earlier? God's people depart. God disciplines. God's people cry out for him. They either repent or perish. 
and God revives his people. Well, how do we not depart from him? And how do we know if we have departed from him? Those three things. Love him, walk in his ways, keep his commands. They're a progression too. Because you will not keep his commands if you don't love him. Right? That's what the New Testament tells us. He who loves me keeps my commands. How do we walk in his ways? We love him more than we love other things. It's a progression. Do you see this? Now, let me just share with you a few things. Go back with me to to, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now stay with me. This is called the Shema that Moses gives the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one in verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your what? Heart. Repeat them to your children. Let them be on your lips, folks. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In every corner of your life, love the Lord. And when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 30, he says it again. Here's what God commands you. Love him first. Everything we do flows from a love for God or not loving God. Every decision we will make really says this. We see apostasy in in scripture, which is basically means is that an apostate is one who turns away from God. Now we know that when we come to know Christ, I don't want to lose you here, but I just want to make this point. When we come to know Christ, our salvation is secure in him. Because we did nothing to obtain it, therefore we can do nothing to lose it. Our salvation is secure in the completed work of Christ. We receive eternal life, not just a few days of life. Not partial life, eternal life. But the, John tells us this in First John. He, he said, these people left us because they weren't of us. They weren't among us. We see all over scripture, Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The, the idea here is, is that there are apostates all among us, around us, people who have given a confession to God, but they depart from him because they were never really his. This is what we see in the children of Israel. Every step they take, their love is drawn away. Every step they take, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And Joshua's going to tell them the same things. Get rid of your idols. And in a few months, when I preach on the book of Judges, you're going to realize how far they have departed from God. How incredibly awful things have been in their nation. Love him. Let me read this quote by Henry Blackaby, and I want you to just listen and think of this in your own life. We lose that loving feeling because we are enticed away with other things. Our focus comes off of God and is placed on our circumstances, other people, or worldly enticements. 
We seldom realize it's happening, but before we know it, we have departed far from God. Why? Because everything starts in the heart. Everything starts in the heart. You know how to... I, I was talking to my wife about this um, last night. I said, tell me some things that you used to just absolutely love, but you just don't love them anymore. She told me one was softball because my wife used to play all the time and played up in college and all that stuff. And I said, why didn't you love it? And she said, well, I just, I had other priorities. I said, exactly. It's not that there was something that you just didn't, all of a sudden that it did that caused them, caused you not to love it. It's just you started loving something else more. That's how it is with God in our life. It's not that God does something in our life for us to go, well, I'm just not going to love him as much. It's the fact that Satan offers something else, offers a counterfeit. There's worldly enticements. There's other people. There's, there's other things that start, we start to love more than God. But Moses says, listen, if you want to have life, if you want to have the good things, the blessings of God, it starts with loving him. Second thing is walking in his ways and keeping his commands, right? That's the second and third thing. Think about this for just a moment. It is not difficult whatsoever to follow God if our heart is set on doing it. Think about it. It's not difficult any shape or form to follow God if your heart is bent toward his. It's not difficult to follow God whatsoever if you're in a loving, intimate relationship with him, if you've spent time with him, if you know him, if you've tried to search out for him. Listen, it is not hard to follow him. If our heart is bent toward him. The problem is, is that we don't love him. Let's just be honest. The problem is, is that we don't have an obedience problem. We have a love problem. We have exchanged God's love and his promises for false gods. I want to show you how we've done it. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, it's in the Old Testament. It's right after Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 2, listen to what God says about his people. These same people that Moses is giving instruction to, there were several generations after these guys that did the same thing that you and I have done. They've departed from the Lord. Go to verse 13. I'm going to preach on this passage later in the uh, coming month, but... I don't want to give it all away, but just go to chapter 13. Basically, the people have rebelled against God. They've departed from God. But in, in, in Jeremiah chapter 2, in verse 13, God says this, For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, so they've departed from me. But they've also done this. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, crack cisterns that cannot hold water. I want you to think every single day of your life how we make bad deals. You ever watch the show, Let's Make a Deal? Anybody ever watch that show? Uh, I, I've watched it a few times. My son loves it. He, he just absolutely loves watching Let's Make a Deal. But they'll give you this thing and they'll go, all right, you've got this prize, but you could have door one or you could have the big box or you could have this and people make bad deals all the time 
And I really don't fault those people because they don't know what's behind those doors. Can I tell you something? We make bad deals all the time and we know what we're walking into. Listen to what it says that they did. Not only have they abandoned him, the fountain of living water, but they've dug cisterns for themselves. A cistern held water that was, that was already produced. And it held water, but it says this, crack cisterns that cannot hold water. Think of all of the false substitutes that you have traded in your life for the fountain of living water. Where God gives us fresh water daily, a fountain of living water, we've gone out and we said, no, 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 I'm going to trade it for this cistern that's actually cracked and can't produce fresh water. It'll just hold water. Why? Why does God say that about them? Why does God say this about Israel's apostasy? Why? Because they've followed other gods. They've traded in the only God for substitutes. You say, well, I don't do that, really. Sometimes we trade God's presence in a church. We depart from him because we, we don't rely on God's presence as we depend on emotional worship songs and use manipulation to invoke responses from people instead of trusting the Holy Spirit. We go to the extremes in helping people having an experience instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to work. The greatest tragedy of this generation, in my opinion, is the fact that we have traded worship experiences for the truth of God's word. And just because we don't see something, feel something, or, or, or can't grasp it in our minds, don't mean it's not true because the word of God says it is. We've traded God's ways, and instead of God's ways, depending on his ways, we walk by sight instead of faith. Think about it. I'm not going to walk by faith. That requires me to trust God. I'm only going to go where things that I know, things that I see. Instead of God's ways where he calls us to deny ourselves, we affirm and we focus on ourselves. Don't we? Instead of God's provision and we trusting in God to provide, we just trust in our limited resources. Instead of God's provision... And trusting in him for him to provide, we never attempt to do anything for God unless we have all the resources we need in advance. Sound like a a budget committee meeting at a church? Sound like the way you run your finances? Sounds like when God says, you need to give, you need to do this, you're like, yeah, but do you see, this is our resources. We don't trust him. Instead of God's guidance, we turn to everyone else instead of God in prayer. When's the last time you went to God in prayer and asked him his thoughts on a certain situation in your life? We pick up the phone. We call our parents. We go research it on the internet. We talk to other people. And then the last thing that we do is, now God, I've done all my work. Now I just, would you, would you, you know, Just do whatever it is instead of asking God what he wants us to do. Instead of God's guidance, we look for advice and news and statistics, but we never look in here. I just want to ask you a question. How far have you departed from the Lord? In every area of your life, and God has revealed to me some things, even the smallest parts of our lives, Zach, you can depart from me. But I want the whole heart. 
I want all your heart. I want all your soul. I want all your mind. I want all your strength. I want it all. I am a jealous God. And I've given everything for you. Here's some indicators. You can write these down if you want to. Here's some indicators to know if you've departed from God. It's a stagnant walk with minimal growth. Look at your life over the past year or two. Are you growing? Are you looking today more like Jesus than you did yesterday? Are you looking more like Jesus today than you did two weeks ago? Are you learning more about Christ today than you did weeks ago? If not, chances are you might have departed from the Lord. I'm not saying you're not his child. I'm talking to to Christians. You've just departed. You need to be revived. This is a big one. Other voices or people have more influence over our lives than God. Other voices or people have more influence over our lives than God. What are you talking about? There are things in our lives that can be louder to us and draw us away and we run and we listen to them when we don't listen to God. When this happens in my life, I fast these things. Just giving you a a tip maybe if, if these are yours. I've fasted Facebook. I've fasted sports radio. I've fasted listening to preaching. I've fasted food. I'm not saying that to show you how holy I am. I'm saying when other voices and other things in our life become louder than God, we need to get rid of them for a time in order to focus on Him and to return to Him. It's a a clear sign that we've departed from Him. That we're chasing other things let me ask you something tomorrow night when all of the good programming comes on on television because you know it's so great and 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 it comes on or tonight when the nba finals the game seven comes on what if god said hey spend time with me and don't watch that game would that voice be louder than god's voice do you wake up every day wondering what your social media says or do you wonder what god says you wake up every day and you just, I mean, just think of your habits and your routines. What is those things that you do every day and you fail to do with him? I can tell you for some of us, I mean, for me, it's, I fasted Christian music. Because I was more excited to get in the car and listen to Christian music than to spend time in the Word of God. I was more excited to get in the car and listen to the the preacher down the street than I was to get in and spend time with the Word of God. I had to fast him for a while. It was a sign that I was beginning to depart from him and started having other gods in my life. It wasn't him. Even though they were wrapped in ministry. And people would say, man, there's nothing wrong with that. It is when it becomes the ultimate thing in our life. Here's another indicator. You have a struggle to obey God and his word. There's just, I mean, just an absolute struggle. It's, I mean, you don't want to do it. I mean, it's just an absolute struggle. You know God's word says something, but you do something different. 
It's a struggle. That might be a clear indicator that you're departing from the Lord. The fourth, this fourth indicator really shows why we have a struggle to obey God and His Word is because it's a ra- you know you rationalize your sin and the choices you've made. You rationalize your sin and the choices that you made. It's a rationalization of your sin and the choices you've made. Well, that's not so bad. Everybody's doing that. I am much better than half of those other people at church. Let me just tell you. God's not dealing with those other people at church. He's dealing with your life. I don't care if you're the pastor or you're the worship leaders or whatever it is. God's dealing with your life. And when we stand before an almighty God, I'm not going to give an account for your life. And you're not going to give account for my life. You're going to give an account for your life. And I'm going to give an account for my life. But we rationalize our sin. That's not so bad. It's a clear indicator that we've drifted from the Lord. Here's a here's the last one, and this is a big one, and I think this really should open some eyes. But there's no desire for intimate time with Him. None. There's no desire to open up His Word and say, "Just, I just want to be with you." There's no desire for. The things of God. For spending time in prayer throughout the day. There's no desire to just sit in the quietness and just know that God is near. There's no desire to just be with one another. What if that happened in your marriage? No desire for intimate time. One of you would go, what? I feel like things are, like you're, you're not close to me anymore. We're not close as we used to be. There's no desire. You have no desire to be intimate with me. To be close. Us to have conversation. Us to talk about things. Same thing happens in our relationship with God. If we have no desire to spend that time with Him, then it's a sure, clear sign that things have departed. I'm done. Go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And then I'm finished. What he says in verse 17. But if your heart turns away, and you do not listen, and you are led astray to bow down to other gods and worship them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish and will not live long in the land you are entering to possess across the Jordan. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God. There it is again. Obey him and remain faithful to him. For he is your life and he will prolong your life in the land the Lord Lord swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You say, but Zach, that's different. That's a conditional covenant. You know, it was all based upon how they followed the Lord and all of those things. And we're in the New Testament. And we have an unconditional covenant. And no matter what we do, and no matter how far we stray, we are still God's children. Yes. But it doesn't mean that, we're, that we just take that for granted, as Paul said. Do we just continue sinning in order that grace abounds? Absolutely not. 
And there are some of you on the verge of collapse. Maybe it's with your reputation. Maybe it's with your witness. Because you've just drifted from God. Drifted and drifted and drifted. And you've departed from him. Every generation faces the same choice. Listen to me. It's either God or self. God or self. As Morgan comes to play, I want to just ask you a simple question today. How far have you departed from the Lord? You say, well, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. That might be just the biggest indicator of all. Is any of them. When we drift from God and we're walking closely with God, you know what we do? I'm drifting from God. I need to get back walking with Him. But the further and further and further and further that we drift and we depart from God, the more we don't even realize how far we are from Him. And we begin to say, you know, when's the last time I spent time in the Word? I go to church and I do the religious activities. But there's no relational evidence in my life. Some of you, you've not departed from the Lord. You just have a false sense of salvation. You've never made Him Lord of your life. You've never said, God, not only do I believe that you've done all of these things, that you've died, that you've rose again, but I confess you as Lord and give you control of my life. And you've never done that. You got up convicted over your sin. You got up and you cried a bucket full of tears, but you never repented. You never had your will bent towards him. Your will never changed. And if that's you, today salvation can come.